Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 23, 2014. I'm host and producer Michael Welch. Earlier this week, a major figure from the civil rights era passed away from an aneurysm. His name was Vincent Harding. Dr. Vincent Harding had, for more than five decades, devoted himself to the cause of peace, justice, and scholarship. He had moved to Atlanta, Georgia, with his wife Rosemary Freeney Harding in 1960. He set up Mennonite House, a mixed-race volunteer service center. He was a prominent, though low-key, figure in the Southern Freedom Movement. Harding was also a noted scholar, having received an M.S. in journalism and B.A., M.A., and Ph.D. in history. Harding had taught at the University of Pennsylvania, Spelman College, Temple University, Duke University, and at the University of Denver. He served as co-chair of the Veterans for Hope Project, an educational initiative encouraging a healing-centered approach to community building. He was the academic consultant for the award-winning PBS documentary series Eyes on the Prize. He taught at the Iliff School of Theology in Denver, where he ultimately served as emeritus professor of religion and social transformation. Dr. Harding was perhaps best known for being a close associate of Dr. Martin Luther King, and for writing one of his most famous speeches, "A Time to Break Silence," which condemned the war in Vietnam. The speech was delivered by King on April 4, 1967, exactly one year to the day. Before King was assassinated, in 1995, Harding published a collection of essays entitled "Martin Luther King: The Inconvenient Hero," which explored the evolution of King's thinking and activism following the famous "I Have a Dream" speech he gave in Washington in August of 1963. Among his observations was the view that contemporary Americans diminish King by confining his influence to his efforts to bring racial equality to Americans. On this week's program, we wish to pay tribute to Dr. Harding's legacy of social justice by playing a speech he gave at the University of Winnipeg in early 2009. The speech was called "Martin Luther King and Barack Obama's Other Ancestors." It was delivered only 41 days into the presidency of America's first black president. This was a time when much of America and Canada were portraying Barack Obama as the realization of Dr. King's dream. Harding takes a tour through history to help his audience get a better sense of what that term might mean. Here now is the late Dr. Vincent Harding on Martin Luther King and Barack Obama's other ancestors from April 2, 2009. I want to try to respond to the question about <clears throat> is Obama the fulfillment of King's dream, and to say that towards the end of what I wanted to share, I wanted to let you know. That I am still wrestling with that question, and one of the reasons why I'm wrestling with it is because I'm not absolutely clear at this point about whether Obama understands at its deepest level 
Shane's dream, just as I think that many of us have candied up Shane's dream and made it sweet because we think that that's all that seven-year-olds can deal with. So I'd like to keep that as an open question. Someone asked about the role of faith in the life and work of the ancestors. Again, out of my own experience as a participant observer in many movements for social change and out of my attempt to understand the study of such movements. And when I say social change, I should be even more precise. I am talking about compassionate, human-growing social change. Because there are all kinds of social change. And I'm talking about the social change that makes us more human than we are. And opens up to us capacities for becoming more human than we know we have. And I have never seen those kinds of movements develop without some kind of profound belief system. In many cases, it is a religious belief system. In other cases, it is another kind of belief system. Perhaps a nameless one, but there must be something both to keep, give people a vision of the possible and something to empower people to go from the present to the future through all the dangerous ways that are involved. Now, what I'd like to do is go from that to some of these ancestors. When I think of ancestors, I think immediately, my sister, of two women. I should say three. I hadn't thought about this. See, your question is bringing a, a new possibility for me. One person that I hadn't meant to mention was Martin King's fraternal grandmother, who lived in the house with him as he was growing up. expected great things from him. And who inspired him in powerful ways to live up 
to her best expectations. The other two women that had come to my mind were two women that he met in Montgomery when he went there. When he went there with the fourth woman, Coretta Scott King, who was a powerful partner for Martin, and who should be added to that initial cadre of ancestors. Because she was a little older than him and lived a little longer than him, she fits as ancestor. But the two women who had come to my mind most readily were two, one of whom is quite famous, Rosa Parks, who was present in Montgomery when King arrived there and must be given that pride of place, who moved before King moved, who decided to sit and resist the temptation to go along with the old system before King did. Rosa Parks was an inspiration to King, an ancestor in the deep sense of King also. She was a number of years older than him and therefore one of Obama's real ancestors in this development of what I choose to call not the civil rights movement, which for me is much too narrow a way of understanding this great movement of transformation that went on in the South and in the nation and in the hearts of many, many people. What I see going on there is something that I would prefer to call the movement for the expansion of democracy in America, in the USA, if I may be more accurate, here in the other part of the Americas. Rosa Parks, one in Montgomery, second person in Montgomery who you would have to go back to Eyes on the Prize or look more closely at some of the books that have been done on the Montgomery movement. A woman named Joanne Robinson, who was, of all things, a professor in the all-black Montgomery State University there when King arrived. And for years before he had arrived, Joanne had been organizing women, mostly professional type women, but not confined to that, to spend time together talking, talking about what they could do to stand against the segregation that was going on in their community. Not just on buses, but the segregation 
that kept black people and black children out of the public parks. So when Rosa Parks took her position, Joanne Robinson was there because she had been preparing herself. And it was she who in the days before Xerox ran off on a mimeograph machine. We could tell stories about that. I don't know if that would help Dan up there, but uh, she ran off on a mimeograph machine 40,000 copies without permission from the university <laughs> telling people there would be a mass meeting. Rosa was arrested on Friday. There would be a mass meeting on Monday. And it was she who then had opened the space for King to appear in. Martin King did not come riding in on a black steed saying, I am your savior. No, he came to be the pastor of a little middle-class black church and maybe, he thought, the assistant dean at the college, but not much more than that. But there were people like Rosa Parks and Joanne Robinson and lots of thousands of nameless quote, ordinary black people with a few white allies who said essentially to him, Martin King, you may not know what a PhD in philosophical theology is for. He was just finishing it when he came. You may not know what a PhD in philosophical theology is for, but we've got something in mind for you. <laughs> He was called into his role by the ordinary, wonderful, working people of Montgomery, Alabama, most of whom had never been past eighth grade. They are Obama's ancestors. Because they, in their determination, to refuse to be humiliated anymore, stood up, walked long miles, refused to use a service that did a disservice to them, they opened up a path, a new way, a new beginning for those who believed in democracy and freedom in my country. And so I think about them the wonderfully nameless them. Children who walked, the old people who walked, everyone who walked instead of riding those buses. They are part of Obama's ancestry. And a lot of them were women who walked to go to clean other people's houses. Because that was a part of the historical moment when this strange, 
terrible and beautiful animal of television was just coming into its own, Montgomery could not be a secret. Something new was happening. Television was looking for things to put on its empty tubes. Oh, do you remember the days when the tubes were empty? And Montgomery began to be known around the country and around the world. And some of the people who heard about Montgomery were young people. And they recognize something there. I'm thinking about four other ancestors. They were four freshmen at a place called North Carolina A&T in Greensboro, North Carolina. And normally and naturally in such settings as this, we might say, and where in the world is that? You didn't say Princeton. You didn't say Harvard. You didn't say Stanford. How could it be important? <clears throat> and the lesson becomes clear that that strange story that we get in the New Testament. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Is meant to teach us something about where good things come from. Not from where the big signs say, good things here. <laughs> but from the totally unexpected places. Including totally unexpected places in our own lives that we don't believe are really good things. And of course Obama has to deal with the fact that it was not Harvard and his wife has to deal with the fact that it was not Princeton or Occidental and they have to learn about Azel Blair and David Richmond and their other college friends who had heard about Montgomery and who in their dorms, as freshmen will do, were solving all the problems of the world instead of doing their coursework at night. And then decided that instead of talking about it, they would do something else. And went down to the local Woolworths store to sit at the lunch counter and to say you cannot serve us on those other counters where you sell our school supplies where you sell uh, bits of information where you sell pieces of consumer items and then tell us that we cannot sit at the lunch counter here in the same store. And we are determined that we're going to sit here until you recognize our humanity. And remember, it was not just a hamburger they were about. 
because they came from homes where people made much better hamburgers than Walmart. <laughs> they were there insisting that their dignity be recognized, that their humanity be encountered. And they were willing to pay whatever price was necessary, and they paid some tough prices and were beaten in many cases and spent time in jail. And they became part of Obama's ancestry. And it is so important to remember that young people, teenagers like these young men, were part of Obama's ancestry. And some of my favorites among that group developed out of Nashville, Tennessee. Again, what strange places for ancestors to come from. Many of us don't even know where Nashville, Tennessee is. But the important thing is that there were people, young people, in that city when they saw what had happened in Greensboro began moving, began developing, began training, began practicing for what they would do in Nashville. And so we begin to hear about people like John Lewis, who was a young student at that time, and Diane Nash, who was Miss Fisk, of 1960 and one of the most sought after dates that you could find <laughs> and Cordell Regan a great singer <coughs> whose wife Bernice Johnson Reagan of Sweet Honey in the Rock was even greater singer and they found Jim Lawson one of Martin King's soon-to-be great friends who was teaching the way of nonviolent resistance, who was teaching that if we are working for a better world, then we have to work for it in a better way. And that violence will never create a better world. It will create a more violent world, but not a better one. These were among the ancestors, and a new generation of young people were becoming ancestors without knowing it. They were finding their purpose in life. They were willing to recognize that they would not find their purpose just by getting a degree and getting a certificate and getting a bank account. But their purpose went deeper than that. And they realized that they would never be truly human until they found their purpose. Those were Obama's ancestors. And here again, the movement of young people like this spread all over the country especially all over the South. And I remember one letter 
that came from a jail in Tallahassee, Florida, where a young woman had been involved in a sit-in there in that town, where Tallahassee, Florida is. And she wrote her letter to her parents, who were good, upstanding, black, middle-class people. And black, middle-class people can be just as difficult as white, middle-class people. <laughs> and as beautiful. <laughs> if not more so at times. And she said, I'm glad to be here in jail. Don't worry about me. I am glad. And this is what it takes for my country to become a better place. I am ready to go to jail again and again and again. Peggy Anderson was one of the ancestors that I suspect my dear brother Barack has never heard of. But there are all kinds of unheard of ancestors who <laughs> set the grounding for him. And there I bring to you the way in which this became a movement and not simply a set of organizational flowcharts. As these young people all over the South began doing these things, they began to be connected to other activities. And one of them was the activity called the Freedom Rides, where not started by young people in this case, but by older people who were part of a wonderful organization called the Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, which was led by a marvelous man whose father was a university professor and who himself thought that he was going to go into the Christian ministry. When he finished Howard University's School of Religion, he looked at the church all around him, especially the Methodist church that he and his family were a part of, and he said to himself and to his father, Father, I am sorry, but I can't go into this ministry. My ministry must be to break down segregation in this country. That is my ministry. This was one of Obama's ancestors, James Farmer. And it was he who was <laughs> crucial to the organizing of the Freedom Rides in the 1961 period, in the spring of 61, just about this time, when the Freedom Rides began, and when black people and white people rode the buses that used to be white in front, black in back, and they instead turned it around and said, we are going to create a new, not just a new bus ride, but a new America. And all around them in the South as they rode, there were people who said, we don't want a new America. The old America has been fine for us, with whites in charge and whites saying where people should sit. 
And if you are wanting to change that, we are going to beat your heads in. And they try. And the students, being students, refuse to turn back. And that opened another total phase of this great movement that leads up to Obama. Because one of the things that happened at that point, remember this is 1961, the height of what we call the Cold War, when this country of mine, the United States of America, was claiming to be the leader of the free world. And its own people could not ride the buses, could not vote if they were black, You've been listening to a special broadcast of the Global Research News Hour marking the legacy of civil rights leader and Martin Luther King associate Vincent Harding on the occasion of his recent death from an aneurysm. This program is downloadable for free from the website globalresearch.ca and can be heard on a number of community radio stations across Canada and the United States. With more from his April 2, 2009 talk, here is Dr. Vincent Harding. And so in response to those explosions that took place during the Freedom Rides, to the beatings, to the burning of some of the buses, the leaders of the government, including the president and his attorney general, his brother, said to the black young people and to the older people, let's quiet this down. The world is looking at us. Let's take this off the streets. Let's do something to work for freedom in a more quiet way. Voter registration. That's nice and peaceful and quiet. And get off of the streets with this direct action. And the students started fighting with each other about whether they should leave direct action and go to voter registration, especially since there was money involved and since there was pleasing the president involved. But here comes another sister ancestor. One of their adult advisors was a magnificent woman named Ella J. Baker. And Ella Baker, in the midst of their struggling over direct action or voter registration, said simply to them, have you considered the possibility that maybe those of you who really believe strongly in direct action should do that? And those of you who believe in voter registration should do that. And amazingly, it seemed to make sense. And then these crazy young people mess things up. Because the people who believed in voter registration said, let's start our voter registration in Mississippi. (laughs) Mississippi, the most terroristic state of the Union at the time. 
the state where dozens and dozens of black people disappeared into the river if they tried to go against the ways of white supremacy. And certainly, if they tried to claim their American citizenship to the vote. And what was the reasoning of the wonderful young people? Well, if we can do it in Mississippi, we can do it anywhere. <laughs> and they went into Mississippi. And they found in Mississippi all kinds of other ancestors. They found Amzie Moore, a World War II veteran who was a kind of small businessman with a filling station, but who was working every night to try to bring people into the NAACP for the plan of desegregation that he wanted them to work at. They found Victoria Gray, another Mississippian. She was another small businesswoman selling hair preparations, as they called it in those days and still in these days. And that whole story I won't even try on to go into. But she was a lower middle class businesswoman we decided that there was something more important for urban profit. That she was going to enter into the possibility of transforming her state and therefore transforming herself. And they found Ed King. Ed King. A native-born white Mississippian who was the chaplain at one of the black colleges, Tougaloo College. If you've never heard of North Carolina A&T, then you surely have never heard of Tougaloo. Where do you even get a word like that? <laughs> Princeton is what we need. <laughs> and yet out of that school, came some of the most important of the young workers for change in Mississippi, risking their lives. That's what SNCC found when they went there. And they also found a woman who was the 20th child born in her family, 20th. If you want a story, there's a story. <laughs> What does it mean to be the 20th child in a poor sharecropping family where the land, the jobs, everything were controlled by white people who were totally resisting to change? And yet Fannie Lou Hamer said, I want to be a part of this movement for change. And besides magnificent courage, she had a magnificent voice. And she entered into the singing movement in marvelous ways. I insist that President Barack Obama, next time he talks about his ancestors, would learn how to say Fannie Lou Hamer. And of course, the ancestry story that develops in Mississippi 
cannot be fully known without remembering some of the ancestors who came to Mississippi from outside of that state to help that movement in Mississippi, most of them people like you, <coughs> students, faculty, professionals from all over the country were invited by the Mississippi movement to come and help us in this process of registering voters, of starting a whole new Mississippi Democratic Party. And in 1964, they called it Freedom Summer, and people came into Mississippi to help the process. Just by chance, was anybody here part of Freedom Summer, or did you have anybody connected to you who was part of Freedom Summer in Mississippi, 1964? Anybody? Oh my! Okay, that's wonderful. History connects us. I was involved in helping to train the people who went into Mississippi during that summer to train them at a university in Oxford, Ohio. And there the growth of the ancestors developed because the first group from that training of hundreds of young people and uh, other people who went into Mississippi included three young men, one of them a native of Mississippi, a native ancestor named James Cheney, another one of them, a young Jewish student from New York City named Andrew Goodman, a third of them, a young core worker who had been living in Mississippi even though he grew up in New York, been living in Mississippi for close to two years. Michael Schwerner and the three of them were among the group that went into Mississippi to begin that work of Mississippi Summer, and they were the first killed. And they are the ancestors. And it was out of that whole experience that my beloved sister, <coughs> Fanny Hamer, went to the Democratic Convention, the National Democratic Convention of 1964, a convention that was still so tied to the Southern white Democratic parties that when delegations came from the South, they allowed totally segregated delegations to come without a black person in them. And the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party said, that must stop. And Fannie Lou Hamer spoke and sang and said, I question America. And moved her way into ancestry to the point that the Democratic Party at that moment, in spite of, not because of, in spite of Lyndon Baines Johnson, the Democratic Party said, okay, from now on, there can be no more segregated delegations coming to this convention. The way was open for Barack Obama. And Fannie Lou Hamer 
and all of those delegates just sang their hearts out on the floor of the convention for his ancestors. Now, as I said, two things occurred to me. One is that the Democratic National Convention of 2008, which was held in my city of Denver, and which nominated Barack Hussein Obama to be president, candidate of the party, could not possibly have taken place without Mississippi and the lives and deaths without the freedom riders, without the sit-ins, without Rosa Parks and Joanne Robinson. But what is not clear to me at this point is whether or not Barack Obama can be really freed up to fully claim king as an ancestor. Can he do that unless he is surrounded by a new set of ancestors? Because to claim king, Barack Obama would have to speak out, not, I have a dream. Almost anybody can do that now, including <coughs> wonderful seven-year-old children. But he would have to start remembering that King did not stop speaking at, after the March on Washington of 1963, that there were five years of King's life before he was assassinated. And in those years, he was not talking about, I have a dream. He was saying, among other things, that there are three terrible, triple evils that my country must overcome if we are to become the country that we were meant to be. One, and everybody expected that, racism must be dealt with. Two, materialism and the denigration and exploitation of the poor must be dealt with. And three, militarism must be dealt with. <clears throat> or we will end up simply being another dying imperial power. And the question is, can my brother Barack enter into the <coughs> ancestry. Can any, quote, president do that without millions of people pushing him, holding him, behind him, under him, demanding that he be his best self? My name is uh, Michael Welch. I'm 
because they remind us of what that old women's liberation collection of essays used as as its title. The personal is political. And there is no separation. If our political work is not just for a cause or even the cause, but if our political work is a work that seeks to help us all to become more human, then it should not be in any way surprising that in the midst of a gathering like this, someone should say, I want to tell you about my sister who died. That's absolutely fitting. And though we might squirm in our seats and say, I'm not accustomed to somebody that I don't even know saying something like that to me. The fact is that that's the direction that we're trying to go in. Where we can all speak to each other about the hurts that we have and then speak to each other as he did about what can we do together about this. Michael, my sense is that that's what you have been working for. Place and a time where you're grieving <clears throat> and your work for a more beautiful world can be meshed with each other. And my suspicion is that if your sister had anything of your spirit or yours of hers, she would be very, very glad for you to include in your time of grieving an opportunity for us to dream of hope. So all that I would say is let the grieving and the hope continue to move together. They are not opposites. They are part of the one whole that we're trying to create as a new humanity. No story, I'm sorry, um, but I'll think of one maybe by the time we have our interview together. But maybe the one other thing I could say, Michael, is that the one name that was not mentioned in all of the introductions that were done of me was a name that is of great importance to me in my development because she was my partner and co-worker for 43 years. Rosemary Freeney Harding. And we did our work together and it was now five years ago 
she went on her way. And my sense is that my continuing to do the work that we did together is part of both my grieving and my joy. That was Dr. Vincent Harding speaking at the University of Winnipeg, April 2nd, 2009, on the topic Martin Luther King and Barack Obama's Other Ancestors. This and other Global Research NewsHour broadcasts are available on the World Wide Web for free. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click the links to the Global Research NewsHour. You may also listen to the Progressive Radio Network and community radio stations across North America. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. This has been show host Michael Welch. We'll leave you now with the group Sweet Honey in the Rock and their tribute to Ella Josephine Baker, mentioned by Harding in his University of Winnipeg speech. The Global Research News Hour will be back next week at this time. Thank you for joining us. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Until the killing of black men. Is as important as the killing of white men, white mother sons. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. Touches me most is that I had a chance to work with people, passing on to others that which was passed on to me. They have the courage where we fail. And if I can but shed some light as they carry us through the gate. Secret of my going on is when the rain.
Don't, 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 don't. 